Hey, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. We're back after some health problems kept us away last week. Those thankfully seem to have cleared up. Today we're talking about experimental animation with Gil Goletsky, who is a really good animator, and how experimental formats and techniques can still manage to create a persuasive world within the film. We have a list of shorts we'll be going through. You do not have to watch those to listen to this episode, but we recommend them because they're good. You can find those in this episode's show notes over at filmformally.com. Wait, I'm not supposed to say the title Welcome yet. Welcome to Film Formally. No, don't worry. We we won't we won't do anything too demanding. All right, recording starting now. Yeah, that's the magic of post production. Gil, name all twelve principles of animation and explain them. Uh, <laughs> uh, the ball bounce. Uh, <laughs> um, squash and stretch um, is when you uh, is when you like hammer. You take a squash and you hammer yes. it. Yes. Yes. Uh, little white white glove. Everybody has white gloves. <laughs> Actually, that has a really problematic history, so that's actually a bad thing to mention. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the history of the white gloves, and what is that? Does it have to do with minstrel uh, shows? Uh, minstrelsy, or? yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's gosh. All minstrelsy, yeah. Yeah. Of course it would be. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, like, it's at the point where, I mean, it got to the point where it was so far removed, nobody remembered. I mean, that's the, that's the insidiousness of it, I suppose. Right. It's like, uh, uh, we still use the... Use the stuff that Griffith popularized in Birth of a Nation, but we're so far removed from right. it that we can't just turn off the valve. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. All right. So and that's I... why animation must be destroyed. <laughs> animation why, uh, was a mistake. Continuity yeah. editing. Uh, let's <laughs> let's do away with it. It's my it's my favorite my favorite fake Miyazaki quote is yeah anime. anime was a mistake yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I found out that was fake which wait that's fake yeah that's mm-hmm. sadly oh, fake oh no I, um, I really like that quote <laughs> <laughs> and I, can, I can realized we just print it, the legend on that I don't know <laughs> I, I realized it was fake when I uh, I was watching I, I was looking at the screen grab it was from I was like wait I've seen that yeah. He doesn't say that <laughs> wait a minute look at the artifacting around the subtitles <laughs> yeah. like Enhance. Who would use Times New Roman for subtitles? No yeah, one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's no. There's no outline. There's no. Uh, there's no stroke around the the the, the letters. <laughs> a three point stroke. Hold on. Goddamn. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Yellow Let me get subtitles. The... <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> Let me get the boys down at the studio looking at this. <laughs> All right. Drop so, shadows. <laughs> okay. So I got I got an intro. Um, I I went a little bit long. <laughs> no, this on... is the intro. <laughs> Sorry. Well, oh no no no. I'm I'm sure <laughs> this might find its way in. One of the great pleasures in studying film, studying art in general, is to see something new, something that redefines familiar forms and their parameters to show a new expression of ideas and feelings. Sometimes even new ideas and feelings themselves. Oh, that sucks. Whatever. A film may be played. <laughs> Sorry, Will. This new style of intro you have, this uh, this almost comedian monologue style, is uh, is good. Keep it going. Our subject today is experimental animation and how it can persuade us to invest in a certain world, a certain idea, a certain feeling, without depending on mainstream processes of animation, 
and without employing traditional standards of realism. Our guest here to help us explore that topic is Gil Goletsky, an accomplished Hi. animator, also a terrific musician. Gil, thank you for being here. I've already cut you off once. That's uh, no, I did the cutting off. Thank you. Hi, howdy. <laughs> so Gil selected a host of experimental animations. Most of them are shorts, and we're going to talk about some of those today. To be clear, you, the listener, do not have to watch these shorts to generally understand our conversation here, but we certainly encourage you to since they're one, wonderful pieces of work, and two, are available for free online. We'll provide links to them all in our show notes for the episode. You can find that at filmformally.com. So Gil, tell us a little bit in broad strokes uh, about what we're talking about today. Um, the little like program that I made, I think, and, and you know, I have my own personal biases. Here, go, here I go with my like nonlinear uh, sort of talking style. <laughs> um, my sort of idea of experimental animation is, you know, any like you said, anything that doesn't really fall. Um, within the like traditional methods of filmmaking and uh the traditional sort of mainstream methods of animating um and so within the 20th century that generally means ink and paint on uh acetate like so uh acetate cell frames of animation so anything that falls outside of that realm an experimental animation in the 21st century can mean also uh, on top of traditional methods, it can also mean digital animation as well. Some of the shorts that I included have to do with experimental digital animation processes as well. So where I started, instead of doing it in a like chronological sense to like, you know, talk about like the history of experimental animation, because I didn't find that very interesting. I started with a piece that is just that is, I think, animated, but has no form. It's just light and dark. And that's um, Peter Kubelka's Ar Arnold Reiner, which is a flicker film. It is just frames of black and white. Building off of that in the program, I sort of went from like just alternating frames of black and white, um, then to like Norman McLaren's Blinkity Blank, which incorporates more forms and then so on and so forth uh putting more kind of experimental uh processes on top of each other uh adding narrative etc until you get to the last short which is a little longer and uh a little bit more contemporary and also just has a lot of experimental processes in it called um uh, the piece is called goodbye forever party by Joni phillips so yeah, Arnold Rainer, um, this is actually a film, Will, that you introduced me to years ago. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember introducing you to it. I don't remember your reaction. Well, I, 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 <laughs> Probably I think unhappiness. the reason I bring this up is that um, the way you introduced it to me was I actually asked you one day, it was like, what is the highest contrast film ever made? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think I was probably on some sort of substance, oh, and also we had just watched Failsafe for the first time. Nice. And I think I still haven't found a higher contrast film. It's true. Yeah, it's literally just a series of white frames followed by black frames in uh, a changing temporal pattern. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a very, like, um, film school film, I guess. I mean, not it's not... Um, Peter Kubelka's fault. I'm, I don't think that was his intention. But um, I'm going to make I, the I, ultimate I, film school film. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like it's going to make 
these students mad. <laughs> um, but I thought it was interest. It was good to um, include as an uh, example of experimental animation because, you know, I think if you're an outsider to animation and ex- especially experimental animation, your your own definition, like I, I'm sure the an individual's definition of animation varies. And so I included this just because I, you know, I think it is experimental animation, even though it is just, you know, con- contra an experiment in contrasting frames. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like I think it's interesting to talk about it as animation, uh, going back to sort of like the foundational meaning of animation, which is right to create a sense of uh, a motion or form or or activity from something that is fundamentally inactive, right? Mm-hmm. And I've never seen Arnold Reiner the way it's intended to be seen, which is, you know, projected um, on a screen in a darkened right. room. Oh, that sounds intolerable. <laughs> yeah. I, but- I've seen something similar and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the same, the strobing yeah. um, and as you watch it, you know, that it makes sort of, um, it kind of burns into your eye and you end up seeing different stuff. And that's, that's actually another interesting, um, sort of foundation of animation is the, um, the idea that it's tricking your eye. Uh, so like, even though there isn't really, um, movement in the traditional sense in Arnold Reiner, as you're watching the flickering, you're starting to see like something that is between the black and white frames, even though it's not it's not gray or anything. And you're just you're starting to perceive something that is like different than just a white frame or a black frame. And that thing and then I think that is that's that's where the animation happens. Yeah. <laughs> Shh, that's where it happens. <laughs> it's between the frames. Yeah, that sounds like super like a jerk off kind of like big, big brain comment. But (laughs) welcome to film formally. Welcome. Yeah, here we are. (laughs) Well, well, can I get really can I get really galaxy brain on this for a second? Because please do. I I actually think that um, part of here's part of my argument for why I consider animation actually like just a subcategory of cinematography. um, Mm. And that's quote unquote cinematography and animation is just as valid. Um, and this is going to get really silly, Yeah. but, um, <laughs> essentially you're doing the same thing when you photograph real images, aren't you? Because you are reducing them to a inactive two dimensional medium, either a digital or celluloid, and then getting your audience to fill in the one 48th of a second gap between frames, assuming you have a 180 degree shutter. So mm-hmm. you're asking your audience to do the exact same work whether you're animating using terms we would or techniques we would usually traditionally associate with animation or techniques we would usually associate with live action filmmaking. I don't think there's as wide a gulf there as people think. That's the end of my rant. Uh yeah. I agree. That's it the that's that's sequential art, baby. <laughs> the kind of idea of persuasiveness, right? The idea of yes. actually getting the audience because a lot of animation is based upon essentially giving the audience enough figurative form and either exaggerating or replicating stuff we would associate with physics to, you know, make something believable, right. As a character. Right. Um, 
Arnold Frainer doesn't do that at all. <laughs> you know, it, right. uh, unless we're, you know, it, it's supposed to be a literal representation of like a white wall with a light flickering. Um, so is there anything specific about Arnold Rayner's formal mechanisms there that you think interact with that idea of persuasiveness in a, in, in a specific way? I think for this film specifically, maybe because the, the, the elements of it sort of yeah, this persuasiveness that we're talking about, they don't seem very, like, tangible, maybe, at first glance. But I, I think because it's such a unusual film, because of, you know, just what, what it is exactly, just the, the white and black frames, the impression it makes, I don't, like, this This is getting very, like, conceptual, I think, at this point. But, Great. Um, <laughs> beca- I think it, because the intention... The, the intentionality of the the sort of randomness of the white and black frames that it is animated right you know it's not the the artist put thought into the sequence of frames there is the like artist hand is clearly kind of like putting them in an order even if the if it doesn't make sense to the audience and i i think that's what makes it animation and that's what makes it persuasive to me because even though it might not be an engaging film in the sense that you don't see a character or even like a recognizable shape other than the screen itself, you can't predict the intervals between the the light and dark. Um, you can't predict the, the sort of rhythm that will come out before your eyes, no, no matter how hard you try, if you're just like watching it for the first time. I don't know if there's any Arnold Freiner like super heads out there that have all the they're like this is the best part when it gets really fast or something they're called academics right yeah, yeah. I, I personally first watched it when i was getting into the ramones and i think there's a lot of similarities there you know where it's yeah this is the ramones of experimental <laughs> animation uh we're using this word persuasive and and it's a word i really like using as a standard for aesthetics in movies like mm-hmm. i think a lot of people use realism as a standard for aesthetics and i right i don't think that's a great standard to use not that realism is inherently bad but mm-hmm. I, I mean what i think people often don't seem to recognize about it is that our impression of realism in a work of art is is formed by all these shifting and arbitrary standards right so like totally. acting is an example you know like we tend to praise like acting that feels real to us and like Mm-hmm. Example, Marlon Brando's performances were like hugely acclaimed for their intensity and their realism, right? right. And today it's it's like <laughs> you like it's so easy to parody Marlon Brando's performance style. We can recognize all of the ticks of them. You know, we can see them as stylized and mannered, mm-hmm. but but the intensity is still there, right? I mean, if you watch on the waterfront, his performance right. is still incredibly intense. It's 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 not just an adjacence to reality that convinces us of Marlon Brando's emotional state, right? And so that's why I like persuasive, because it implies yes. that there's a negotiation between the film and the audience going on. Yeah. Well and, and I think I think it also like allows room for like, yeah, stylization. I think stylization is incredibly persuasive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at if you remember the the sort of stylization of the backgrounds in in um 101 Dalmatians that sort of 60s uh 
kind of art deco-y kind of stylization of the backgrounds. They're kind of, they look as though they are printed, uh, but they're very convincing in that way. Like there's a, there's a, a geometric simplicity to them that is not based in any kind of realism. That's something that you see again and again in, in, in either mainstream animation or expen- experimental animation. It's like this like grounding in these like strong shapes that I think are persuasive. And I think the, the realism, the battle of like realism against animation, like animation has always been pitted against film, uh, like live action film forever, right? They're not considered to be like the same art form or even though they are, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that necessarily, but I think it's interesting to see just how much experimental animation goes in the other de- direction, just completely issues realism and actually embraces the kind of limited nature of the mediums that it works with, which you'll see in some of the next films we might talk about, uh, like Norman McLaren and Caroline Leaf, where the artist is working with a material that is so kind of fragile or limited in what you can do. So like Norma McLaren is working with, um, I think 16 millimeter celluloid film and Caroline Leaf was working with like sand animation. Those materials are so, there are clear boundaries with what you can do with them and the way that they use them to actually just like completely expand animation as a medium is so interesting to me. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about, uh, blinkety blank a little bit sure and uh and the owl who married a goose we could yeah. probably talk about them in tandem why do you think they they use their respective mediums in similar ways so looking at owl who married a goose which is based on uh inuit legend and uh blinkety blank by norma mclaren which is a um direct animation which means it's scratched or painted into directly onto 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter film. Both of them kind of have this non-perspective, like a flattened perspective, but this flattened perspective that's also open. Like the figures will, like there are figures that come closer to, you know, what you expect to be the camera and go away from it. But at the same time, they're on this sort of, you know, this blank in the uh, case of, the owl who married a goose for most of the film it's on a mostly white background and uh for norman mclaren's it's on a the black background so they have this kind of timeless like floating in space feel and many of the figures are kind of silhouetted so in the owl who married a goose the sand animation makes the figures of the owl and the figures of the goose as they interact and Similarly with Norman McLaren's, he animates these kind of like splashes of color and occasionally these figures um, come out of the darkness, like these bird-like figures as the film progresses. One thing that really struck me about both is that they're they're both focused on <laughs> the interactions of two birds or like bird-like shapes. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they both play out mostly on a very flattened plane, especially blankety blank the owl who married goose has some stepping into the foreground and such but they also yeah, both, does. they both have these 
really great startling moments to do with depth, like near the end of Blankety Blank, when these two figures are kind of at the height of dancing around each other, all of a sudden, all these objects start flying towards like kind of, I guess their feathers start flying towards yeah. the screen. And, and what has been up to this point, a completely two dimensional plane, suddenly there's this explosion of depth while these two bird figures are always shifting and morphing continue their sort of dance. And it's it's really it's really striking. I think it's a good example of part of what makes it so surprising is because we've accepted, I think, the idea that there is no depth as such in the film up to this point. Totally. And so it's a good example of a film getting to kind of write the rules of its own world and physics as it goes along. And and it's a little less abstract, but the owl who married a goose, I mean, there's moments where just where the characters will walk away from or towards the camera and they get smaller or bigger. Wait, my will, favorite what camera? The... <laughs> go ahead. I refuse to go into that much depth qualifying everything. <laughs> the camera, the, the Kino eye. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> and, but there's, there's a moment at the end of The Owl Who Married a Goose where it switches to a black background, which number one is really cool because it indicates this tonal shift, but Number two, mm-hmm. because the the goose swims into the background, and as the goose swims away, the goose becomes more and more black mm-hmm. as it recedes away. And it's just this cool way of, like, it's not really something you could exactly do in the same way. You can't have someone literally gradually recede into blackness unless you have very right. graduated shadows in live action. Mm-hmm. And the goose kind of like dips in and out of shadow, like almost just winking out of view and existence. And it's just, it's this really unique way of playing with the idea of depth. And I mean, if you're, if you're at all willing to buy into the sand animated aesthetic, then by the time you get into that point of the film, you're probably ready to go along with anything. <laughs> and so you just, you just accept it at face value. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a beautiful thing that, uh, experimental like some of the best experimental animators do so beautifully is I mean that's all it is is their experiments and so when somebody's making a film like this it's almost like they're le- like it sometimes feels like you and the filmmaker are learning how the medium works as you're watching because inevitably I think with almost all of these films there's a point in which you're you you and then I think sort of like the filmmaker on the timeline of the film are kind of like okay I think I kind of get how like how what the material they're working with like all the things it can do and then they usually take it to the the, the next level <laughs> um, <laughs> like there's this example that I didn't include any films with this technique just because it's so esoteric. Uh, but have you heard of, uh, I actually, I, I sent along like a, a little documentary of the pin, pin screen animation. Yeah. Um, so what it is, is it's like those, I think there's sometimes there's like those toys for kids where they have those pins and you can like depress your hand in it and then it'll like, the pins will kind of form like a mold around you know, whatever you press into it. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with, with pin screen. It's like this wall with all these pins that you can push in and out. Yeah, it's that, but 250,000 pins. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, 
for for anyone curious, by the way, if you happen to have seen the Orson Welles film, The Trial, there's a, a fairly simple example of a pin screen animation in the intro mm-hmm. to that film. Uh, by by oh the, really? I haven't seen The Trial. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, and it's by Alexia and Claire Parker who invented the form and uh yeah it's it's a oh wow it's not one of the most of course right yeah i I did know that there's actually there's fairly little animation going on in that intro but it's it gives you an idea of the aesthetic that right created at least yeah and i i think there's like something crazy like there's only three like proper pin screen animation pin screens in the world um but it's the shadows from these pins that uh the shadows that they cast um, that makes the animation. So to pe- depending on how you're lighting them, you can make the animation look totally different. Um, and there was this film that I saw, because usually with the pin screen animation, the you'll shoot sort of dead on looking at this uh, pin screen from a... The pin screen is standing vertically. You know, you're, you're uh, pointing the camera at it from a 90-degree angle. And so this film I saw... You know, they're, they're animating all these pins. And then at a certain point, the camera angle, the way that they were shooting the pin screen changes. Uh, the camera was looking at the pins as if you were looking through like a field of grass. <laughs> um, instead of looking um, at the thinnest points of the pins, you're looking at them sort of standing straight up. And the animation completely changed, like the, 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 the style and like the, the perspective and the plane of the animation and I think that's what that's what's so interesting about experimental animation is they're less about well some sometimes they're less about this narrative and more about taking this medium to its absolute limits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the boundary pushing is the narrative in a way. Yeah, one, totally. One thing one thing I find really illuminating about the pin screen animation kind of um experiment you described is that um when that happened, I, I actually get like really motion sick because um uh, it's like my brain doesn't know how to interpret what it's seeing because it it's taking you know these as almost pixels right but then it reveals them to be three-dimensional and when i first saw that kind of being filmed from the more oblique angle um especially when the camera moves and they all kind of like change directions fluidly Mm -hmm. um it's almost like my my brain didn't know how to interpret what it was seeing, um, which I think gets at something I think fundamental about how these animations work linguistically, which is that they, you know, any medium we're we're describing has sort of a I use the word contract with the audience when I talk about genre, but I think it describes medium too, where it's like we we have when we have an agreement, we're going to understand this medium in a certain way, we're going to use these elements of it to create figurative art in this way um, or abstract mm-hmm. art and when you break that when you when you suddenly show i guess show the strings um that can mm-hmm. lead to really interesting and unexpected results or it can break yeah. break the work if, if you don't know what you're doing i guess <laughs> totally <laughs> well i think even breaking the work that could be interesting too oh yeah deliberate if- breaks <laughs> are the best that's my that's my jam <laughs> yeah i love to break the work <laughs> i wish they would bring back animated title sequences yeah no kidding like 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 fun and like like sally crookshank sort of like animated sequences yeah because you know you look at the like the just kind of like the lamest like 70s like comedies 
and they still have animated like beautiful animated title sequences bring it back yeah we talked about this a little bit in our uh, last episode with peter labuza like the the joy of these little self-contained films within larger totally yeah (laughs) those are usually the best parts (laughs) yeah exactly Um, so, so the next couple of shorts we're, we're talking about um, ha- have some kind of commonalities because they're both essentially using uh, artificial intelligence, computers, etc., to fill in the gaps between frames. Uh, metadata by yes, Peter Fuldez. Um, did I pronounce his name right? Yes, I believe it's an accent aigu. Okay. <laughs> that makes an eh sound. I did not pay attention in my French class. I learned about the different accents when I was a kid, and there was a Pokemon trivia thing in a little yes. magazine, and it was like, is the accent over the E of Pokemon an accent? <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's an accent grave, not yeah. an accent aigu. The accent aigu is the one that points forward. That's the Pokemon one, yeah. I should, Yeah, it is the Pokemon one. I should never get to become bilingual. I, Ugh. <laughs> I'm so I, bad at I this. apparently I apparently have a I have a high school diploma that says I'm bilingual but I don't think I am. <laughs> oh, you don't need mm-hmm. to know the name of the accent to be bilingual. No, it's true. It's how you use it. That's what matters. And I'm going to edit in right now and not so fast by Pilot Red Sun. Not- <laughs> <laughs> oh right, yes. Right, we're recording a podcast here. I love I love di- we love digital animation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I added these just because I, I think digital animation doesn't get, um, I think when, when people think about experimental animation, a lot of the time, digital animation doesn't come up as much. Yeah, or it's digital animation that's experimenting with techniques you could use in non-digital, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or it's, yeah, it's trying to um, emulate something like a material, a real material, like pencil crayons or something like that the thing i like about metadata and um not so fast is that they look like they were made in the computer and they definitely were (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the sort of uncanniness like both of them lean into the sort of uncanniness of animating on a computer um and that's what i love about them is the insane movements that come out of trying to animate the human figure by using only like algorithmically generated in betweens yeah so let's let's break that down a little bit sure so metadata it uses all just these lines and i think they're just lines kind of drawn between points yeah and it has keyframes i think and for those who don't know keyframes are like just kind of these set they're basically just these frames that are decided okay this next this frame and this point in the animation whether it's a pose or or just an important moment uh, this is an important point in the animation that we're going to move towards. And so the last keyframe before it, the kind of goal will be to move from that keyframe to the next keyframe in, yeah, exactly. in a way that's, that makes sense with what you're trying to animate. And so, right. I, and, and this kind of, the idea of this is that it, it, number one, the keyframes are very far apart from each other. So, you know, in traditional animation, a keyframe would be, you know, in, in, one keyframe, Bugs Bunny has his hand at his side, and then the next one he shoots it upwards to wave, right? And those are the two keyframes. But here it's like one keyframe is two human beings uh, holding each other, and the next keyframe is like a flower. And right. 
the computer takes all the little lines that are on the screen and interpolates between them, meaning that it will try to move the lines from one keyframe to the other in a purely computerized algorithmic way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was a that was a great explanation. In fact, I'm glad you explained it, and I didn't have to explain it because it would have been like three times as long and not as like understandable by human ears. <laughs> but yeah, I I love like metadata is such a interesting example of the type of animation that you'd later be able to do in something like Flash. But it's this is from 1971. This is like you know 40 years before Macromedia Flash ever existed. So um, it's so cool to see somebody using the same the the same kind of rules and fundamentals of that that, that program in a way that is so experimental and unusual. And then looking at something more contemporary, like not so fast. It's the same idea the the animator pilot red sun i don't know this person's real name they're a kind of a internet enigma if you've seen any of this person's animation they're kind of meme worthy i suppose they did that the, their most famous animation i think is uh this animation of garfield he's like talking really like in a garbled sense because like the internet loves garfield <laughs> but but not so fast is this it's this very kind of bizarrely animated, digitally animated short of these two guys in a car. And it kind of has this sort of like, I, I hate this word, but I guess trippy um, sort of perspective where it, it does feel like the, all the um, character movements have been algorithmically generated or uh, like they're using a lot of like content aware scaling and, and just purely like the computer doing the thinking. Yeah, it looks like there's a lot of still images used that have been like stretched and distorted so that like all the artifacts of digitally distorting stuff like totally make it they they just space the details that allow us to figure out what something is. They they make the spaces between those things bigger, so it really feels like a computer trying to trying to interpret the 3D space out of a two-dimensional image. Yeah. Um and all the weird stuff that happens when you don't have that information, if that makes sense. But it's so it's so funny too. Yeah. <laughs> just the way yeah. the way that the sort of um, you can't really separate animation from uh, comedy a lot just for just in historically, and it's so interesting to think about uh, how digital animation has its own kind of set of like comedy rules, like where 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 technology, I guess quote unquote fails or succeeds in this person's case. Um, this has like its own rule set for why it's funny, I guess. And maybe to some, most people, it's not funny at all. The, this dude taking uh, this animation style just like all the way into, into a big dumpster. <laughs> yeah. This, I, I, I was excited to talk about Not So Fast because I think it touches on a few things about how to make how you can make experimental animation more accessible to the masses and some of the pitfalls of that. So like <laughs> number one, the, the weirdness of, <laughs> of the imagery and, and as you said, the trippiness of it is partly justified by the fact that the characters are high on quaaludes. Right. Um, 
And number two, it's justified because it's it's funny looking and there's a lot of comedy in the short. And it reminded me of something Don Hertzfeld once said. Uh, Don Hertzfeld, like a fairly famous stick figure animator. He named like his top 10 criterion picks, I think. And mm-hmm. he picked one of his picks was Stan Brackage. And what he said, like, yeah. sometimes I struggle with Brackage's contemporaries because I wish experimental film did not always have to seem so completely allergic to having a sense of humor. Yes. And I think he's partly right. But I, and I, I think to some extent we think of like when experimental film is funny, we stop thinking of it as experimental film. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, I mean, uh, I'm, these are these are kind of just big obvious examples but like Tim and Eric stuff, for example, yeah. like did some really radical stuff, um, but they found ways to make it funny and that makes it more approachable and, and that right. allows those things to move in the mainstream. But I think the pitfall of it um, can become that you start thinking of of experimental techniques as just a way of achieving comedy and you stop looking for the other things they can do. Right. I think, I don't know if I agree with that mm-hmm. 100%. I think my issue with it isn't so much that it gets reduced to only being used for comedy. I think that it, because it has that kind of mimetic quality where people are like, oh, you know, if they see something like this, this Pilot Red Sun short, and it has this kind of messy, it, like it's funny, but it's messy because it's made on a computer. You know, this person's stuff started from like animating in Microsoft Paint. So it has this kind of accessible quality where people might look at it and think, oh, like, you know, this is messy, therefore I can make it. Right. I mean, Pilot Red, Red Sun's work has been endlessly reproduced by people on the internet, like endlessly. Like like this, this person, I don't know if this... this person has seen like a dollar from just sort of their influence on internet humor um but like you know many have copied this person and few have succeeded right um and i think that's the pro that well not the problem but the that's kind of like the thing that haunts animators in the in the 21st century is being reduced to like a meme essentially for being weird and funny right (laughs) Um, and I think like that was the central like one of the central uh, actually um, issues in Don Hertzfeld's career was that he made yeah maybe one totally. of those meme memeified works of art ever. <laughs> I know, yeah, I, and yeah, I'm sure like he has like very similar things to say. They're more probably more inspired things to say than what I'm currently saying. <laughs> Um, I haven't actually seen like any of his work. Like I've seen, I'm I'm familiar with the sort of memeified stuff, but I haven't seen it. Uh, it uh, it's such a beautiful day or anything. I know that's like makes me a criminal, but <laughs> I'll I'll say this: it's such a beautiful day is like one of the only films that like never leaves my top ten films of all time. I know, I know. Everybody says this to me. <laughs> Literally, everybody says this to me, and I'm just like, I just haven't seen it yet. It's not because I have a problem with him. I'm just, I haven't seen it yet. Well, I, I haven't read I Ulysses, so, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, but there you go. <laughs> I read it every night before bed, as you know. <laughs> as, 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 as all intelligent people tend to do. <laughs> I, I, oh, yes. <laughs> it's Hertzfeld in the morning and Ulysses late at night for me. Yeah. <laughs> Hertzfeld in the morning, sailor's so, uh, so warning. <laughs> 
Ulysses at night, Sailor's Delight. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you. I, I was going like, I'm curious what Gil thinks about because I'm I'm just a, a big Hertzfeld fan. I was like, I wonder if Gil. I I have no opinion because I ha- don't, I literally I've seen like no movies. Yeah. So <laughs> every like every film, you're just like, yeah, this Orson Welles film, and I'm just like, I've literally seen like Citizen Kane, and that's it, baby. <laughs> hey, that's fine. We all have our blind spots. I have I have some pretty bad blind spots. Uh, I, I, I feel you know I, I actually I, I feel like the canon is almost this I don't know like I we we're skeptical of canonization here but um, oh yeah so am I there's that sort of you know fallacy right where it's like well if you haven't seen Citizen Kane or whatever you're somehow like you're I guess you say a criminal but then if you you know uh, most of our you know, people listening to this probably have not seen, you know, Goodbye Forever Party. <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, uh, there's there's that, in, you know, bias towards can- canonical films versus like, you know, kind of su- what's for carving out your own palette that I think, I, you know, I tend to like to work against because, yeah, you know, it's uh, again, um, it's that idea that, oh, if you haven't seen this weird, this kind of consensus pick then somehow you're worse off yeah i i mean like i i also am kind of against that but then at the same time i'm like yeah haven't seen it such a beautiful day you got me i gotta do my homework Uh, and then i just like put on another episode of Columbo and I'm like, haha, he's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen an episode uh, of Columbo. I th- I feel like Columbo Don't was, even get me started. Columbo <laughs> is like so blo- I don't know what it is, but like if I feel like among millennials, like Columbo's like like snuck into the TV canon somehow. Or like just he's- ev- I just remember like eight years ago people going like, oh yeah, Columbo, it's incredible. I love Columbo. And I'm like, what the what are you talking about? And like it is very good. Yeah, it's very good. Everyone just loves Columbo. <laughs> that thing aired for Columbo. thirty-five years. Yeah, <laughs> because people love Columbo. Yeah, <laughs> that's insane. It it ultimately doesn't matter. Just like watch enough that you find reference points of what to talk about with people and try to curate what you watch so that you're learning things and getting a, a good range of voices represented and beyond that like don't don't worry about it <laughs> that's yeah my totally i have my own little areas that i've seen a lot of stuff in and, yeah. and then but then i'll i'll be the f- first to admit that like i mean even this list that i quote unquote curated like it's very western centric like i don't i don't know a lot about you know i'm not i don't have a huge um knowledge base of like non-western experimental animation like i'll be honest um well that's where the yeah, treasure like, planet comes in <laughs> <laughs> yeah baby i mean like i yeah i love i loved that the fucking soviet tre- treasure planet it's so good this might be my um, favorite thing <laughs> it's honestly i was so i was so tempted to just be like yeah let's just watch planet. <laughs> it's so good we would have been on board like if you want yeah. to come back I and do the Next Treasure time, Planet I'll episode, come back. I, I would do a tre- I would insist on doing a Treasure Planet episode. Good grief! Like that that thing is thing is everything. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. So moving on, I mean, kind of still, it's it's in the digital sphere in as much as it's filmed digitally and definitely aided by digital editing tools, but don't know what is was the next film on the program yes, by thomas renalder 
yeah. I actually chose this over um, a, a short that I think kind of quote unquote invented this technique. I don't know if if uh, he did actually, but it's the um, Alone Life Wastes Andy Hardy by Martin Arnold. Um, and uh, Thomas Renolder actually knows uh, Martin Arnold. I, have you seen Alone Life Wastes Andy Hardy? Nope. I have not. It's this Mickey Rooney um, TV show from the 50s. And this guy, Martin Arnold, t- takes the old uh, film from this Oh, I have uh, seen short. this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he, he makes like basically it's a proto YouTube poop. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... And of course, all the comments are just like, wow, YouTube poop. Um, but yeah, he sort of remixes, so to speak, the this uh, television show uh, in a way that is sort of experimental. Um, and Thomas Renalder does the same thing. But instead of using found footage, he does it with footage of, of himself. It's basically just sorry. I was just like looking at it and the sound started playing. Um and yeah, he's just he's just playing. <laughs> he's just playing with clips of himself and he's kind of like doing like this chopped and screwed editing with this footage that he's taken. Um but it is animated, I would say, even though it is live action. You can definitely make a case for it being animated. I mean, this this again gets to interesting the blurry lines, right, between <laughs> animation and live action. I mean, don't know what because it's just uh uh flipping between different points. I mean, you could call it reanimated if you insisted mm-hmm. on reanimator. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, what's interesting about it is that I mean, at first it's just moving back and forth in fairly obvious ways to make his speech and movement a bit more abstract, but as the as the short moves along, it starts flipping between more and more drastic poses. Right? right. So it'll like from one frame to the next, it'll like flip. I, I'm using the word flip because it because his hands will move from the table. And then the very next frame, it'll it'll be holding his hand up and then he'll be holding his hands up, but leaning to the left and then holding his hands down on the table again. And this happens so fast that there's a flicker either. Either it creates a sense of almost stop motion animation or there's like a flicker effect, which right. creates this weird frantic animation and then eventually he flips a table over and the frame starts just moving so fast that it just becomes this crazy geometric spiral right yeah because he flips this table over and the table is this black square and then eventually the the table yeah it becomes this part of the frame itself Uh, yeah then it just becomes completely abstracted at the end i feel like this is kind of like the the spiritual successor to uh, to Arnold Reiner, yeah, in the sense that it's like this time there's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to include something that I consider to be animation, uh, experimental animation, and also technically live action. Yeah, where there's not a frame of it that wasn't shot and like that wasn't conventionally photographed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I like pixelation is still a legitimate the form of animation. So pixelation is a a technique where it's been sort of memeized as well. Uh you see uh people doing videos of like taking pictures of themselves jumping in midair and then like you know doing it so it looks like they're just floating around a room or something like that. That's pixelation. Um so like um 
Thomas Renalder is using that technique uh, in a more, I guess, big brain experimental sense. Um, but I, I just like, I like the idea of using experimental animation techniques entirely in the sort of post-production realm. Cause I think with animation, it's like everything is production, right? There isn't, I mean, there is a post-production, but when obviously when, he, uh, Thomas Renalder was filming this or whoever was, uh, helping him film it, you know, they, they weren't exactly animating. It wasn't until after when you take it into the sort of post-production mode, you know, when you're in like premiere or whatever, then the animation begins. Um, I think that's really interesting because generally it's like when you're animating traditionally, you are kind of already editing while you are animating. Yeah. So when you're animating, you're not making more, you're not like f doing what you do when you're filming live action where you're making more sort of film than you're going to use, right? Like I'm sure for this short, there's there's probably hours of unused footage um, whereas when you're animating, generally it's like what you're, you're editing on the fly. So I like the idea of experimenting with the medium of just editing footage itself. That's, that's a really, I mean, I've always been a fan of editing. Like I started before I was an animator, I was interested in editing. So, um, that's why, that is why, that is why I chose this film <laughs> to bring to school today. All right. So moving on. Yeah. Angel's Egg, I, I just thought was uh, good to include because of the the like insane amount of stillness especially in just the little excerpt that I included the way that they have the panning sort of backgrounds and reflections and stuff those like really still shots of just the character and then the background it's less experimental but I think it was I wanted to include it just because it, it's an example of maybe some some less sort of westernized techniques that I think are very underutilized in some experimental animation, especially stillness, I think. I think in experimental animation, there's this, like, pressure to, like, make things just be, like, moving all the time, a lot of the time because you're just using one kind of medium. Um, but with Angel's Egg, there's, yeah, I don't know, so much space to, like, contemplate it's really a movie that you can like sit and stew in yeah it's so rare among i think uh animation in general in that i think mm -hmm. in animation there is such a pressure to animate everything that stillness is i mean uh, angel's egg partly gets around that by having extremely complex backgrounds and architecture and right so there's a lot of you know, implicit motion in the line work in the film, even when there's no actual physical motion among the characters or objects. But it's it's so great to watch an animated film that will just like loop someone's hair waving for like 40 seconds. I know. I love that. And, and that's something that's so um, interesting about uh, uh, like Japanese animation yeah. history is how... Um, important stillness is to the to the animation more more important than the movement itself sometimes and not all anime does that obviously but um 
in the case of Angel's Egg, it's like, yeah, it's those really, really, really complex, beautiful backgrounds and uh, really feel it like being able to feel the stillness between the movements. And then contrastly with Face Like a Frog, it's like they're related in, in the sense that they're like kind of opposites where Face Like a Frog is loud and constantly moving and hyper simplified. Every new shot a lot of the time will cut to the characters or environments are in the middle of a new motion that they were not yeah. performing in the last shot. And we don't see the beginning or end of the motion. We cut in on the middle of the, of the motion every time. It just makes it yeah. so overwhelming, gives it a sense of such hyperactivity. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, Sally Crookshank is so good at, like, cutting on action, but, like, doing it in the sort of quote-unquote wrong way. Yeah. But the way she does it is so, like, playful and, and fun. Like, I love this short so much. Like, I've watched it. I've, ri I've written about it and also watched it just, like, dozens and dozens of times. Yeah, don't go in the basement. Don't go in the basement. Also, yeah, the musical cameo from D Danny, Danny Elfman. <laughs> Before he was Danny Elfman. Well, be when he was just the guy in Oingo Boingo. After he was Danny Elfman, but before he was Danny Elfman. Yeah, d the Daniel Elfman. Elfman. <laughs> the other tangential thing I wanted to say about Angel's Egg was that uh, uh, you, you did not mention that it is a sequel to The Owl Who Married a Goose. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, because it's about... Oh, like, it's, a, it's, it's about... It's about someone who their would-be partner betrays them and uh, right. they can't. Uh, and so they, they end up not being able to um, give birth to the bird and the egg. And so they right. uh, they end up sinking into the into the black fathoms of the sea. And uh, the <laughs> final stream of egg like bubbles emerges from their from their lips. Damn. Well, you know, you know what? Um that was all part of my plan. Was no, to it create wasn't. Then you would have made the... Angel's Egg number four instead of number eight. <laughs> Angel's Egg. Uh, back, back in the habit. Um, <laughs> I'm running. I'm yeah. running. I'm running out of jokes <laughs> that are that make sense. You can always drop a back in the habit joke. It's just, people just start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you know they announced Sister Act three. Really? Wait, yeah. there, wait, 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 back up. Back She's up. back. There, She's there's back. There's a Sister Act back in the two? Habit. Yeah, there's Sister Act 2. My friends watched it without me. I'm super pissed. Sister Act 2 is back in the habit. It oh, is. Oh, wow. Like, I get why Electric Boogaloo is a famous, like, sequel. No, back in the habit is way funnier. It, I mean, Electric Boogaloo can, can take a hike for all I care. <laughs> well, it's Electric Boogaloo, I think it's... I get why it's famous in that it's like it's not funny. It's like it's it's meaningless. I, yeah. What does it mean? If people, you know, it's 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 famous because I think people don't like to admit it, but they're attracted to Dadaism. <laughs> right. I see. And that's what Electric Boogaloo is. That's what. It <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about jo Joni Phillips, the last person? Should we talk about... We can talk about Back in the Habit for another 15 minutes, or we can talk about the last film on the list. Whoa, Bill Duke directed Back in the Habit too, and not only is he an actor, he's a successful director nice. with many profitable films. That's insane. I did not know wow, that. Wow, a real John Cassavetes. <laughs> I didn't know Bill Duke was also a director. That's amazing. <laughs> 
Anyways, <laughs> back talk in about- the habit directed by John Cassavetes. <laughs> oh boy! How good would Sister Act Two be if? I mean, he was he was dead for four years when Sister Act Two came out. Also, his like big like made for them studio films are not. No, I know. They're not that great. <laughs> I think Bill Duke did better than Cassavetes would have. Also. <laughs> Wait, this implies you've seen Sister Act. Back in the Habit 2 was made for him. (laughs) It was made for all of us. It's the only film that's made for all of us. It's true. There's a Broadway musical called Sister Act. There's a what? Sorry, called? With music by... There's there's a Broadway musical based on Sister Act with music by Alan Menken. Wow. wow. The stars are out. Holy cow. (laughs) Is Whoopi in that one? No. They, who gets to play Whoopi, though? I think oh, it's like a. a well, I mean, like there, there's a lot of people who have played Whoopi in that because it's a it's a play. And <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's not how it works. Well, yeah, because you got the UK cast. There's like five. No, they no they get Whoopi every time. <laughs> <laughs> they fly her in. Okay, you I swear realize we that we have get... enough. We have enough material here to do a sister act bonus episode now, just from the, what we've just been talking about. <laughs> I'm well. I'm I'm. Uh, I am personally friends with Joni Phillips, the director. Well, uh, acquainted uh, online acquaintances with the with her. Uh, I think she would be delighted to know that we that we spent the entirety of the time where we could have been talking about her great film. Instead, we're talking about Sister Act and the extended universe. I think she'd be delighted. So, <laughs> but I think we should still talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about the last film on the list, Goodbye Forever Party, which you you put at the end because it's long. It's long, and this person, this filmmaker, is a, a a newer person, a newer a newer person in that they are physically younger and have been on the earth not as long <laughs> as some of the other people that right. created these films. Uh, I think that uh, she's a very um, important filmmaker in the twenty uh, first century. Uh, she's incredibly prolific and and very experimental and uh, I don't know I love this film I think it's I think it's a terrific film. What is it? What is this film? What is it? It's it is. Uh, well, I will simply just read this um, synopsis. It's it says Lilith, a performer for a children's show called The Scrumbos, struggles with her job, mental illness, and relationships. Uh, it's a a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of cutout animation filmed on a multiplane sort of setup. There's uh, paper, paper and pencil. It's a it's a 20 minute film. It's a character study. It's it's a it's a narrative. It, I don't know. <laughs> it kind of emerges as more of a narrative than what you think it will be at the start. It starts as like a the Teletubbies parody thing, and then the camera literally pulls back to reveal like the studio audience and. It becomes about one of the people playing one of these like Teletubby like figures, and the vast majority of the film winds up being black and white, pencil drawn, just about her dealing with a spiral into mental health issues, issues with her job, issues with her with her partner, issues with her roommate, just issues upon issues, and she and just the spiral never really ends and and the film continues supplying these comedy moments but it ends up being what's the word i don't want to say dour because i don't think it's a dour movie no it becomes thick with with angst it's fair to say i picked it because i think 
um like where where it is experimentally so it's animated in an experimental fashion i think it's more the narrative that that um i find to be more the the more experimental element of it i don't think i've ever seen a a, a short that looks quite like this but i think the the way it flows and much of uh joni phillips's work flows a lot like in a similar fashion i think it ties really well as a kind of fitting finish to a discussion about animation and the way it creates it persuades you of things in an unreal setting or an unreal world in that goodbye forever party it flips somewhat infrequently but it flips between these two styles one is like this color construction paper cutout style of the teletubbies parody show within the show and the drawings there are extremely like childlike and simplistic and there's more of a focus on the depth i would say of the animation like the the shadows are extremely striking like right every cutout casts an extremely strong shadow on the cutout which gives it more of this um tactile uh, uh kind of um this is often used as a pejorative but i do not mean it that way like crafty kind of look right um whereas the black and white personal stuff it's rougher the shadows between the objects and the backgrounds are a lot less pronounced what i'm Mm -hmm. getting at here is that you have these two very different ways of presenting worlds that are clearly not meant to be taken as realistic in the case of the teletubbies parody it's not realistic because one it's a parody two it's a children's show um right and Three, it's a show within a show of this. So there's supposed to be a a degree of separation. But in the black and white material, um, um, I think it's heavily implied that her mental health deteriorates to the point of psychosis. And so to some degree, there's a detachment implied there as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But even besides that, just the moment to moment application of style and motion are just so carefully suited to the material that even though the world is not even vaguely real it's Mm -hmm. super persuasive right like it's very very good at the messiness of the lines um in the drawing um and the the imperfections of the techniques used are just really good at helping to put you within the character's world. And this is, I mean, I I have not watched a full Joni Phillips film, but I, I sort of briefly glanced at um, some other stuff and it looks like there's a lot of stylistic breadth to the animation yes. techniques that get used. Yeah, and I think that's something that she's like a master at is that the the way that she animates or the 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 style that she draws her characters are just the she uses the 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 kind of way that in a kind of a looney tunes cartoon they would exaggerate like a a character's sort of facial expressions but she uses it in a way that is like so like sort of deranged and actually just like uh <laughs> like you know she uses that to explore like a character's trauma and like a character's mental health problems like that's not something that you know is usually like taken seriously in a, a lot of older um 
uh, more uh, exaggerated kind of cartoons. So I don't to see that um, applied to experimental animation is and and in this way is uh, I don't know. There's nothing else like it. I haven't I haven't seen anything anybody doing what Joni Phillips is doing currently. And also she's just like she's a machine. <laughs> like she's made like I think she's like 22 and she's made like. Like her, her. This isn't even her graduation film. I think her graduation film is like forty-five minutes long yeah. or something like that. <laughs> it's it's insane. Yeah, she already has like a five-film cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> Called wasteland. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I, yeah. I think it's. Um, I would say not. Uh, I don't know whether it's. I, I I don't feel like it's a list where I can apply. Like, here's the best film on the list. But I think if there's one film on the list that you sent that is kind of instructive for understanding what we're talking about. I feel like Goodbye Forever Party is probably the best at touching on a lot of the different themes that we've been discussing. So totally. Yeah. And I, I think it's because it's it's newer, it's like uh not that it makes it more accessible, but because it's it's from like, you know, it's from somebody who has such a new perspective like you know Joni's she's a gay trans woman um she's you know she's really young she has all she's really talented like nobody like her is is like getting this kind of these kind of animations out there right now and so I'm really excited to see like where she goes next because I think she's gonna like ascend to some kind of deity at some point <laughs> perhaps she already that's has what, that's what i believe <laughs> and uh, I, I think the the phrase uh, jesus is the best mood stabilizer is, is always <laughs> <laughs> that's so good yeah that was, I mean, that, that was that, that there's a lot there <laughs> some sometimes you can just say i liked the movie and i have no other comments yeah, yeah you know i my comments were all like a series of um indistinct grunts that were trying to get across what you two were really yeah across well so that's that's kind of how that's how my dad watches movies a year ago i watched princess mononoke with him because i thought he would really like it he cares about the environment and we watched it in total silence and then he after we finished watching it he got up and went to bed and then he never mentioned it ever again <laughs> I think my dad's a maniac. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. He loved it. I'll never convince my dad that Street Fighter the movie is worth watching. Did, has he watched it? I think back in the 90s. Right. Probably. Or tried to on television. I don't know what my dad's Anyways. favorite movie is. Maybe it's Ghost Dog by Jim Jarmusch. Mine is definitely Field of Dreams. Really? <laughs> the daddest dad uh-huh. movie. <laughs> the daddest, that the is, daddest of dads. Anything Kevin Costner is a dad, like that's that's the dad genre. Of- Man of Steel, dad movie. Yep. Uh, dad Man of Steel, Superman, dad uh, movie. Untouchables. What's your dad's favorite movie? Oh, probably 2001. <laughs> wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. No, my, my dad's like a movie buff, but not like, uh, not into the whole experimental i'll never convince him to like speed racer for example <laughs> right right much as i try although he did have a begrudging respect for it <laughs> i well that's more than i think i could get my dad to enjoy right. speed i think my dad would probably fall asleep just from like fear like he as a like a, a 
a defense mechanism because he's <laughs> almost 70. <laughs> I love Speed Racer though. Great, great film. Oh yeah. Great picture. One of the, one of the best discoveries uh, of the decade for me. Speaking of experimental animation, that thing, that, that's, that's a film that, that is... thing. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the whole, do you know about the whole cubist element of it? Like, um, uh, <laughs> no, please enlighten me. I, I forget which, uh, which, which, which Wachowski it was. Do you remember uh, which of the, which of the sisters it was, Will, who said that? Nope. Um, that the, um, uh, th- that essentially the, the editing style of Speed Racer was intended to be a filmic version of uh, cubism. And I think that's right on. And uh, I love that. Yeah. I love I think the thing I love about the Wachowskis is that they're all their movies are insane and they think and like they kind of come off like they're saying something more than they actually are, but they kind of aren't, but they kind of are. <laughs> um but all in all it's just a fun they're just fun movies with with uh, insane visuals and I love that. That's enough for me. <laughs> yeah, the fun factor is unstoppable. Yeah, the fun the fun never stops. I, I watch the I watch the Matrix and I clap along like a little baby they the also, whole time. Every single movie they've made has terrific music. All of it's them. true. Speaking of it's which, true. Will every single one. We have to watch Bound. You haven't seen Bound. We I need to rectify that's this. True. I have heard the score for Bound though. I have not seen. It, it might uh, like uh, depending on my mood, that or Speed Racer is my favorite other films. Oh wow! Yeah, it's really really good. All right, so let's 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 cruise into the wrap up here, Gil. Yeah, yeah. You got any stuff you want to plug? <laughs> oh shit! Uh, excuse me. Um, uh, YouTube. All right. Thanks for joining us today, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> you want to plug YouTube.com? Yeah, there's lots of videos in there. You can check them out. Seems like they got a video for every mood. They've got a like uh, uh, evolution of dance. <laughs> you remember that video? Have you seen 2006? Have you seen this? This is crazy. Um, funny, funny, funny goat videos. They sound like they sound like humans screaming. That one was a big hit. Um, yeah. I, I, I mostly in my teenage years used it to watch bootleg videos of Bruce Springsteen. So um, that was my introduction oh, that's cool. to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Should I plug my website? If you want to. If you want people to see it who listen to this podcast. <laughs> but do I want people to see it? It's Goletsky.com. G-O-L-E-T-S-K-I.com. That's my website and I live there. I won't give you any more plugs. Right. You can figure okay. out everything. As an alternate plug, I could have just said, all right, folks, Gil has a website, but there's no, but we're not going to tell you what it is. You won't be able to find you Gil Goletsky's website easily Don't at all. Don't find Gil Goletsky's website. Definitely G-I-L- won't be in the show notes. G-I-L-G-O-L-E-T-I. Yeah. No, it won't. <laughs> we're going to blank out any letter that appears in that website's title from our show notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> blank out my name, too. Asterisk, 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 asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just put an asterisk on, like, every um, vowel. We're just going <laughs> to delete any proper nouns in this podcast so nobody knows what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> That's cool. That's If we had every- guts, we would do that. If we had guts, we would do that kind of experimentation. We would put our money where our mouth is. 
film formally, but every time somebody goes on a tangent and gets faster. <laughs> <laughs> the episode would be, you, you wouldn't even have an episode. It would be two minutes long. <laughs> Three nanoseconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, I'm going to finish Thank- up the wrap up now. Thanks so Please. much, Gil. What a blast it was Thank talking you. to you. Thank yeah. you for having me. I hope I, I hope that I listen. I I'm glad I'm not editing this episode. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. That's a wrap for this one. Thanks for listening, folks. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a rating and review for it to help folks discover it or chipping in a little to help the show going at patreon.com slash film formally. You can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at film formally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye-bye! The original Gundam, by the way? It's it's pretty good. Uh, It's pretty good. I've not seen a single Gundam. Eh. (laughs) 